Chapter Seven, Part Two of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Queen Victoria by Giles Lytton Strachey. Chapter Seven, Part Two. Three. To carry on Albert's work, that was her first duty but there was another second only to that, and yet nearer, if possible, to her heart. To impress the true nature of his genius and character upon the minds of her subjects. She realized that during his life he had not been properly appreciated. The full extent of his powers, the supreme quality of his goodness, had been necessarily concealed. But death had removed the need of barriers, and now her husband, in his magnificent entirety, should stand revealed to all. She set to work methodically. She directed Sir Arthur Helps to bring out a collection of the Prince's speeches and addresses, and the weighty tome appeared in 1862. Then she commanded General Grey to write an account of the Prince's early years, from his birth to his marriage. She herself laid down the design of the book, contributed a number of confidential documents, and added numerous notes. General Grey obeyed, and the work was completed in 1866. But the principal part of the story was still untold, and Mr. Martin was forthwith instructed to write a complete biography of the Prince Consort. Mr. Martin labored for fourteen years. The mass of material with which he had to deal was almost incredible, but he was extremely industrious, and he enjoyed throughout the gracious assistance of Her Majesty. The first bulky volume was published in 1874, four others slowly followed, so that it was not until 1880 that the monumental work was finished. Mr. Martin was rewarded by a knighthood, and yet it was sadly evident that neither Sir Theodore nor his predecessors had achieved the purpose which the Queen had in view. Perhaps she was unfortunate in her coadjutors, but in reality the responsibility for the failure must lie with Victoria herself. Sir Theodore and the others faithfully carried out the task which she had set them, faithfully put before the public the very image of Albert that filled her own mind. The fatal drawback was that the public did not find that image attractive. Victoria's emotional nature far more remarkable for vigor than for subtlety, rejecting utterly the qualifications which perspicuity or humor might suggest, could be satisfied with nothing but the absolute and the categorical. When she disliked, she did so with an unequivocal emphasis which swept the object of her repugnance at once and finally outside the pale of consideration, and her feelings of affection were equally unmitigated. In the case of Albert, her passion for superlatives reached its height. To have conceived of him as anything short of perfect, perfect in virtue, in wisdom, in beauty, in all the glories and graces of man, would have been an unthinkable blasphemy. Perfect he was, and perfect he must be shown to have been, and so Sir Arthur, Sir Theodore, and the General painted him. In the circumstances and under such supervision, to have done anything else would have required talents considerably more distinguished than any that those gentlemen, 
possessed. But that was not all. By a curious mischance, Victoria was also able to press into her service another writer, the distinction of whose talents was this time beyond a doubt. The poet laureate, adopting either from complaisance or conviction the tone of his sovereign, joined in the chorus and endowed the royal formula with the magical resonance of verse. This settled the matter. Henceforward it was impossible to forget that Albert had worn the white flower of a blameless life. The result was doubly unfortunate. Victoria, disappointed and chagrined, bore a grudge against her people for their refusal, in spite of all her efforts, to rate her husband at his true worth. She did not understand that the picture of an embodied perfection is distasteful to the majority of mankind. The cause of this is not so much an envy of the perfect being as a suspicion that he must be inhuman. And thus it happened that the public, when it saw displayed for its admiration a figure resembling the sugary hero of a moral story-book rather than a fellow man of flesh and blood, turned away with a shrug, a smile, and a flippant ejaculation. But in this the public was the loser as well as Victoria. For in truth, Albert was a far more interesting personage than the public dreamed. By a curious irony, an impeccable waxwork had been fixed by the Queen's love in the popular imagination, while the creature whom it represented, the real creature, so full of energy and stress and torment, so mysterious and so unhappy, and so fallible and so very human, had altogether disappeared. Four. Words and books may be ambiguous memorials, but who can misinterpret the visible solidity of bronze and stone? At Frogmore near Windsor, where her mother was buried, Victoria constructed, at the cost of two hundred thousand pounds, a vast and elaborate mausoleum for herself and her husband. But that was a private and domestic monument and the Queen desired that wherever her subjects might be gathered together, they should be reminded of the Prince. Her desire was gratified. All over the country, at Aberdeen, at Perth, and at Wolverhampton, statues of the Prince were erected, and the Queen, making an exception to her rule of retirement, unveiled them herself. Nor did the capital lag behind. A month after the prince's death, a meeting was called together at the mansion house to discuss schemes for honoring his memory. Opinions, however, were divided upon the subject. Was a statue or an institution to be preferred? Meanwhile, a subscription was opened, an influential committee was appointed, and the queen was consulted as to her wishes in the matter. Her Majesty replied that she would prefer a granite obelisk with sculptures at the base to an institution, but the committee hesitated. An obelisk to be worthy of the name must clearly be a monolith, and where was the quarry in England capable of furnishing a granite block of the required size? It was true that there was granite in Russian Finland, but the committee were advised that it was not adapted to resist exposure to the open air. On the whole, therefore, they suggested that a memorial hall should be erected, together with a statue of the prince. Her Majesty assented, but then another difficulty arose. 
it was found that not more than sixty thousand pounds had been subscribed, a sum insufficient to defray the double expense. The hall, therefore, was abandoned. A statue alone was to be erected, and certain eminent architects were asked to prepare designs. Eventually the committee had at their disposal a total sum of one hundred twenty thousand pounds, since the public subscribed another ten thousand pounds, while fifty thousand pounds was voted by Parliament. Some years later, a joint stock company was formed and built as a private speculation, the Albert Hall. The architect whose design was selected, both by the committee and by the Queen, was Mr. Gilbert Scott, whose industry, conscientiousness, and genuine piety had brought him to the head of his profession. His lifelong zeal for the Gothic style having given him a special prominence, his handiwork was strikingly visible, not only in a multitude of original buildings, but in most of the cathedrals of England. Protests, indeed, were occasionally raised against his renovations, but Mr. Scott replied with such vigor and unction in articles and pamphlets that not a dean was unconvinced, and he was permitted to continue his labors without interruption. On one occasion, however, his devotion to Gothic had placed him in an unpleasant situation. The government offices in Whitehall were to be rebuilt. Mr. Scott competed, and his designs were successful. Naturally, they were in the Gothic style, combining a certain squareness and horizontality of outline with pillar mullions, gables, high-pitched roofs, and dormers. And the drawings, as Mr. Scott himself observed, were perhaps the best ever sent in to a competition, or nearly so. After the usual difficulties and delays, the work was at last to be put in hand, when there was a change of government and Lord Palmerston became Prime Minister. Lord Palmerston at once sent for Mr. Scott. Well, Mr. Scott, he said in his jaunty way, I can't have anything to do with this Gothic style. I must insist on your making a design in the Italian manner, which I am sure you can do very cleverly. Mr. Scott was appalled. The style of the Italian Renaissance was not only unsightly, it was positively immoral, and he sternly refused to have anything to do with it. Thereupon Lord Palmerston assumed a fatherly tone. Quite true, a Gothic architect can't be expected to put up a classical building. I must find someone else. This was intolerable, and Mr. Scott, on his return home, addressed to the Prime Minister a strongly worded letter in which he dwelt upon his position as an architect, upon his having won two European competitions, his being an A.R.A., a gold medalist of the Institute, and a lecture on architecture at the Royal Academy. But it was useless. Lord Palmerston did not even reply. It then occurred to Mr. Scott that, by a judicious mixture, he might, while preserving the essential character of the Gothic, produce a design which would give a superficial impression of the classical style. He did so, but no effect was produced upon Lord Palmerston. The new design, he said, was neither one thing nor t'other, a regular mongrel affair, and he would have nothing to do with it either. After that, Mr. Scott found it necessary to recruit for two months at Scarborough, with a course of quinine. He recovered his tone at last, but only at the cost of his convictions. 
For the sake of his family, he felt that it was his unfortunate duty to obey the Prime Minister, and, shuddering with horror, he constructed the government offices in a strictly Renaissance style. Shortly afterwards, Mr. Scott found some consolation in building the St. Pancras Hotel in a style of his own. And now another and yet more satisfactory task was his. My idea in designing the memorial, he wrote, was to erect a kind of ciborium to protect a statue of the prince, and its special characteristic was that the ciborium was designed in some degree on the principles of the ancient shrines. These shrines were models of imaginary buildings such had never in reality been erected, and my idea was to realize one of these imaginary structures with its precious materials, its inlaying, its enamels, etc., etc. His idea was particularly appropriate since it chanced that a similar conception, though in the reverse order of magnitude, had occurred to the prince himself who had designed and executed several silver cruet stands upon the same model. At the Queen's request, a site was chosen in Kensington Gardens as near as possible to that of the Great Exhibition, and in May 1864 the first sod was turned. The work was long, complicated, and difficult. A great number of workmen were employed, besides several subsidiary sculptors and metal workers under Mr. Scott's direction, while at every stage sketches and models were submitted to Her Majesty, who criticized all the details with minute care and constantly suggested improvements. The frieze which encircled the base of the monument was in itself a very serious piece of work. This, said Mr. Scott, taken as a whole, is perhaps one of the most laborious works of sculpture ever undertaken, consisting, as it does, of a continuous range of figure sculpture of the most elaborate description, in the highest alto relievo of life-size, of more than two hundred feet in length, containing about one hundred seventy figures, and executed in the hardest marble which could be procured. After three years of toil, the memorial was still far from completion, and Mr. Scott thought it advisable to give a dinner to the workmen, as a substantial recognition of his appreciation of their skill and energy. Two long tables, we are told, constructed of scaffold planks, were arranged in the workshops, and covered with newspapers for want of tablecloths. Upwards of eighty men sat down. Beef and mutton, plum pudding and cheese were supplied in abundance and each man who desired it had three pints of beer, ginger beer and lemonade being provided for the teetotalers, who formed a very considerable proportion. Several toasts were given, and many of the workmen spoke, almost all of them commencing by thanking God that they enjoyed good health. Some alluded to the temperance that prevailed amongst them. Others observed how little swearing was ever heard, whilst all said how pleased and proud they were to be engaged on so great a work. Gradually the edifice approached completion. The 170th life-size figure in the frieze was chiseled, the granite pillars arose, the mosaics were inserted in the allegorical pediments, the four colossal statues representing the greater Christian virtues, 
the four other colossal statues representing the greater moral virtues were hoisted into their positions the eight bronzes representing the greater sciences astronomy chemistry geology geometry rhetoric medicine philosophy and physiology were fixed on their glittering pinnacles high in air the statue of physiology was particularly admired on her left arm the official description informs us she bears a newborn infant as a representation of the development of the highest and most perfect of physiological forms her hand points towards a microscope the instrument which lends its assistance for the investigation of the minuter forms of animal and vegetable organisms at last the gilded cross crowned the dwindling galaxies of superimposed angels the four continents in white marble stood at the four corners of the base and seven years after its inception in july eighteen seventy two the monument was thrown open to the public but four more years were to elapse before the central figure was ready to be placed under its starry canopy it was designed by mr foley though in one particular the sculptor's freedom was restricted by Mr. Scott. "'I have chosen the sitting posture,' Mr. Scott said, "'as best conveying the idea of dignity befitting a royal personage.' Mr. Foley ably carried out the conception of his principal. "'In the attitude and expression,' he said, "'the aim has been, with the individuality of portraiture, "'to embody rank, character, and enlightenment.' and to convey a sense of that responsive intelligence indicating an active rather than a passive interest in those pursuits of civilization illustrated in the surrounding figures groups and relievos to identify the figure with one of the most memorable undertakings of the public life of the prince the international exhibition of eighteen fifty one a catalogue of the works collected in that first gathering of the industry of all nations is placed in the right hand the statue was of bronze gilt and weighed nearly ten tons it was rightly supposed that the simple word albert cast on the base would be a sufficient means of identification end of chapter seven part two